How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can get together this evening. We can study your word, and as we open the infallible word of God, we have the ability to to understand it through the indwelling and the teaching, filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that we live in such a fantastic time as we do in this church age that we have all of the assets and privileges that we have as members of the body of Christ, as royal priests, members of the royal family. Father, we pray that we might not uh, treat these grace gifts lightly, but we might recognize what a tremendous privilege it is to live during this time and what a fantastic opportunity we have as believers to glorify you and to be uh, witnesses in the angelic conflict. Now, Father, as we continue our study on understanding your plan, we pray that we would see its significance and that it would truly help us to understand your word and history and the events around us better. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study tonight of uh, this God's plan for the ages, dispensations and covenants. We need to uh, have a little review. We've looked at the covenant structure in the Bible. These are biblical covenants, not the theological covenants of what is known as covenant theology. Don't get confused over that now. When you speak about covenant theology, the covenants don't refer to the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the uh, New Covenant, Davidic covenant, whatever it might be. The covenant in covenant theology refers to uh, covenants that are uh, allegedly found in the Scriptures, and they refer in covenant theology to a covenant of works, a covenant of grace, and sometimes they, there are some that hold to a third covenant of redemption. It's not the same thing. There is a, a difference. These are the eight biblical covenants which we have studied in their entirety, the three Gentile covenants, each of which brought new revelation, which instigated a shift in, in the dispensational plan of God. God has a plan, and in that plan He has successive administrations uh, that are marked off by changing mod- or modifications in revela- revelation. These are not something new or radical or contradictory. Dispensationalism does not teach that there's one way of salvation in the Old Testament then another way of salvation in the New Testament, but there are modifications usually brought about as a result of human sinfulness. For example, in the original Garden of Eden, there was the creation covenant, which I'm taking as a primary term now instead of the Edenic covenant. Because of man's sin and disobedience in the fall, God had to modify it. That's the Adamic covenant. Man continued to be disobedient. The human race was judged. All but eight were destroyed in the flood. And then afterward, God made a new covenant with Noah called the Noahic Covenant. Its terms are still in existence today and do not go out of existence or not modified until uh, probably the millennium. 
Jewish covenants, you have the unconditional covenants, which are all developments, uh, which are the, based on the Abrahamic covenant, and three developments. Abrahamic covenant focuses on three provisions, land, seed, and blessing. The land provision is expanded in the real estate covenant. The seed provision is expanded in the Davidic covenant, and the blessing is expanded in the new covenant. There's one conditional or temporary covenant in the Old Testament, and that is the Mosaic covenant, which was designed as the political uh, covenant, the political constitution for a nation. It was not a means of salvation, and it was not a means of sanctification. It defined, though, uh, the ritual related to the spiritual life of Israel, not for Gentiles or anyone else in the Old Testament. Now, when we look at the covenants and the unconditional covenants and their expansion from the Abrahamic covenant, we see that they're the uh, three main covenants, the real estate covenant, Davidic covenant, and new covenant, all have their ultimate fulfillment in the millennium. The new covenant, though, because it is a covenant that establishes, that was established at the cross for all eternity, it's, we saw that it's clearly called the everlasting covenant again and again, it provides the basis for salvation even in the present church age. So Gentiles are blessed, brought near, Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of the old Mosaic laws torn down so that now there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile. That is a result of the new covenant. But it is not in effect today. It is not. It has been established at the cross, but remember it's between God, party of the first part, uh, Judah and Israel, party of the second part, and it's not brought into uh, being until the millennium. Now, last time we saw that following the age of Israel, there is a, another dispensation. Now, not all dispensationalists recognize this, but I think that there is solid biblical support for saying that the time of the life of Christ was a separate dispensation, which I call the Messianic dispensation. Now, there are others. I, I put this chart up on the board just to show how different dispensationalists have broken things down over the years. And one dispensationalist, James Hall Brooks, in the late 1800s, distinguished this between the Messianic age and what he called the age of the Holy Ghost, which we would call the church age. And that was because there are certain aspects of the life of Christ that are unique. He fulfills the law in the Old Testament. Romans 16 says he is the end of the law. If he is the end of the law, then everything in his life was to bring to completion the law. He said, I did not come to destroy, but I came to fulfill the law. So he fulfilled the law, but at the same time he did it through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. He didn't live a perfect life on the basis of his deity, but he lived it as a man, as true humanity, living in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That was a unique feature. Never before in human history had people been given the Holy Spirit as a basis for the spiritual life. Jesus Christ pioneered that uh, spiritual life. He set the precedent, therefore, for the spiritual life in the church age by the way he lived his life in dependence on God the Holy Spirit. So I think there is sound reasoning behind setting apart that period of time when Christ was on the earth as a distinct dispensation, and we covered that in detail last time. Now, the uh, uh, let me back up a minute. It seems like I came in here and made a 
quick adjustment to this uh, slide presentation just before I uh, started. And, of course, you know, something like that always messes things up. There we are. We just got things way, way out of order. So let me fix it real quick or we'll be in serious jeopardy here. This one chart has so many elements to it to run your way through it takes forever. Okay, here we are. Well, just crank it up. Okay. Two basic time periods in the Old Testament relate to the age of the Gentiles and the age of Israel. There's a major shift that takes place when God calls out Abram in Genesis 12:1. From that point on, even though God is no longer, even though God is still saving Gentiles, God is no longer working directly with Gentiles. From Genesis 12:1 on, God starts working with the human race only through Abraham and Abraham's descendants. That's why that shifts from the age of the Gentiles to the age of Israel. Now, the age of the Gentiles is comprised of three dispensations. The first is perfect environment based on the creation covenant with the responsibility to fulfill that covenant. They failed by eating the fruit, and the divine judgment was spiritual death. That problem is not solved until the cross. That brought about a modification of the creation covenant, which we call the Adamic covenant. Spiritual life is related to ritual, to faith, trust in God based on human sacrifices. <clears throat> the animals did not save people, but they portrayed how God would eventually redeem mankind. But again, man failed. Evil and wickedness dominated the antediluvian culture, and God destroyed it with a flood, introducing the third dispensation of the age of the Gentiles called the dispensation of human government. The Noahic covenant is the controlling document. Man is commanded to fill the earth, but instead of scattering over the earth, they gathered together in central cities. And one notably was Babel, where they built the Tower of Babel, so God confused the languages of mankind at the Tower of Babel. As a result of the failure of the Gentiles, God calls Abram. That begins the age, or the age of Israel and the dispensation of the patriarchs based on the Abrahamic covenant. They are commanded to be a, remain a distinct people in the land of Canaan. They failed by the time you get to uh, Jacob's children, to the 12 sons who comprised later the 12 tribes of Israel, or really Joseph was not a tribe. He had two sons who became the tribes, but Judah, Simeon, uh, Levi, uh, Naphtali, Issachar, and all of the others, they start assimilating. They want to intermarry with the Canaanites. And so in order to keep them distinct and separate, God sent them down to Egypt where they went, became slaves because the Egyptians were so prejudiced against the Jews, they would not intermarry with them. They didn't want to have anything to do with the Jews. At Sinai, the time of the Exodus, God called out a nation and gave them a law. It was, based, it was called the Mosaic Covenant. The, man, the uh, principle was to obey the law. That was the principal responsibility. They failed, disobeyed the law, and the result was that they are scattered over the earth after the, their rejection of the Messiah. That brought in the Messianic Age, which we looked at last time. It comprised, the new revelation here is the Lagos himself. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory full of grace and truth, John tells us. No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten has revealed or exegeted Him. Now that tells us that there's a new revelation unlike any other revelation in all of human history, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ at the Incarnation. It is remarkable. So there is clearly something new happening in history. The responsibility at that time was to identify and accept him as Messiah. The Jews failed to do that, and they rejected him, and the result is the fifth cycle of discipline. It is only the cross and the work of Christ on the cross that redeems mankind as he dies as our substitute. He paid the penalty for all of human sin. After his ascension, about ten days after his ascension, we have the introduction of the church age, which we began last time. The new covenant has been established at the cross, and on the basis of that, you have new covenant blessing in the church age to Jew and Gentile alike. The responsibility in this church age is to have faith alone in Christ alone for salvation, and then to advance to spiritual maturity after salvation. The major question that very few people answer anymore is after salvation, what? What is the believer to do after he's saved? Most places it just have a social club and go to church and learn a lot about the Bible, but they don't understand anything about the spiritual life uh, or very little about it. And in fact, in most churches and most denominations, they're going back to the Mosaic law and ritual as a basis for their spiritual life instead of basing it on walking by the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. And, they don't, and when they do emphasize that so often, they confuse it with emotion. And that is not what the Bible teaches. They, in the church age, most will reject Christ. There will be failure even by the church. And the divine judgment is a tribulation. But the church will be taken out and will not go through the tribulation. They will be taken out of what's called the rapture. And we will study that next week and the following weeks. So the post-cross dispensations look like this. Church age ends with the rapture. That sometime after the rapture, the Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel, and there's a seven-year tribulation which fulfills the last seven years God decreed for the age of Israel. At the end of those seven years, Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the second coming destroys the forces of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and establishes his kingdom, which lasts for 1,000 years. So this is what we have left to cover in our study. And the dispensation of the Messiah. For those of you who weren't here last time, the central person is Jesus Christ. The name of the dispensation comes from his offer as Messiah. It's a legitimate offer. God the Father knows and has known from eternity past that Israel was going to reject that offer. Nevertheless, it's still a legitimate offer. That makes it actual. It's an actual offer. It's a legitimate offer, but Israel rejects. Because they fail in their responsibility to identify and accept the Messiah, they are going to be judged through the fifth cycle of discipline and scattered, taken out of the land until God restores them at the end of the tribulation as a regenerate nation. The grace issue in the dispensation of the Messiah is that he has come to bring health and healing to the nations. He has come to heal the lame, to give sight to the blind, 
to heal the crippled, to bring all of the wonderful blessings promised uh, in the prophets and said to, be, to come with the Messiah. But he is rejected. And that's the volitional issue, is to accept or reject Jesus as Messiah. Israel rejects him, and that brings judgment on Israel. But God introduces a new plan, which is the church age. Uh, in terms of the angelic conflict, there is an intensification of opposition and a demonic assault on the Messiah. There's no time in history like the time when Christ was on the earth for demon possession. You just don't see it in any other time in the Scriptures. You don't see it at any other time in human history. Not that there isn't demon possession today. I think there is. But the only solution is faith alone in Christ alone. That brings us to the church age. The central person in the church age is the Apostle Paul because it was given to him to explain the mysteries. That's the term the Bible uses, to explain the mysteries of the present age. Mystery means an, a previously undisclosed revelation. It's not like a whodunit, trying to figure out who committed the murder, and like you watch on a mystery show on TV. A mystery in uh, Greek language refers to a previously undisclosed truth. The name of the church age, come, or sometimes called the age of grace, comes from John 1.17, which talked about Jesus, who was full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul is indeed the apostle of grace. It is not that there is no grace prior to this dispensation, but the grace in this dispensation brings far more. Far more is freely given to the believer in this dispensation than any other age. And we're going to examine that in detail. The responsibility is to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, faith alone in Christ alone. The test is the cross, whether or not we will trust in Christ. And the second test is whether or not we will accept the challenge to advance to spiritual maturity. These are the two main issues. The two most important decisions in our lives are, number one, what are we going to do about Jesus Christ and the cross? And once saved, the issue is, okay, now that you're a child of God, are you going to stay a crybaby in diapers spiritually? Or are you going to advance to spiritual maturity and learn all of the spiritual assets and blessings that God's given you and learn how to use them to glorify God as an adult believer? Most Christians fail in that one. They just never understand it. They're never taught it. It's too much of a challenge. They don't want to persevere. They become distracted by all the cares and riches and details of life, and they get overwhelmed by having too much fun or too, much, too many problems or too much of a struggle in life to, become, uh, to have to go to church three or four times a week to study the Word. They just don't want to make it the number one priority in life. The judgment will be the great tribulation, seven years. When Satan is turned loose on planet Earth, the Holy Spirit is removed, the church is removed, and it will be the most incredible suffering the human race has ever known. It's going to make the suffering the Jews went through during the Holocaust of the Second World War look like nursery school. I'm not belittling that suffering at all. I'm just saying by comparison, the great tribulation is going to be a uh, hundred times more severe and more extreme than what the Jews went through in Germany during the Holocaust. And it will involve everybody on planet Earth. The issue in grace is that multitudes, 
Millions and millions, if not billions of Gentiles are saved during the church age. In fact, you know, there are more people alive on the planet today than have been alive in history since the cross. You add up all the people alive from the cross to 1950, more people are alive on the planet than lived from 33 A.D. until 1950. So that just tells you the vast numbers that are alive today, and most of them will not be saved. But nevertheless, throughout all the church age, multitudes of Gentiles are saved, brought into the body of Christ, as are many Jews, not nearly the number, though. Many Jews, a remnant is saved, and will spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. The volitional issue relates, number one, to the cross, accept or reject Jesus as Messiah, and number two, grow spiritually. And in terms of the angelic conflict, Satan has been defeated at the cross, and now he's going to do everything he can to take as many people with him as he can. He's going to pull out all the stops to destroy the witness of as many believers as he can. So in terms of the first issue, remember the first issue is the cross. So in terms of that issue, Satan's number one goal, uh, strategic goal, is to blind men's minds. Notice, not their emotions, but their minds. The issue is belief. Belief is a mental thing. It is not an emotional thing. Satan attempts to blind the minds of men to the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and he attempts to destroy the witness of believers in the church age. He goes about like a roaring lion, seek, seek, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, First uh, Peter 5.7-9. Uh, and he brings about an assault on the Jews because if Satan can wipe out Israel, if Satan can destroy the Jews, wipe out every Jew off the planet, then it will be impossible for God to fulfill his promises in the Abrahamic, real estate, Davidic, and new covenants. If no Jew survives, then God is proved faithless and unable to control history, and Satan wins. So that is his ploy, and God is going to give him as much of an opportunity as he can during the tribulation. When God pulls out the restrainer, 2 Thessalonians 2, when God removes the Holy Spirit in the church, Satan is going to have almost an unrestrained opportunity to destroy Israel. He will destroy many Jews. Thousands, millions probably will be destroyed during the tribulation, but there will be millions who are also saved. In fact, at the very beginning of the tribulation, there are going to be 144,000 Jews saved who will be evangelists during the tribulation, Jewish evangelists to go throughout the world because you see once again the, the uh, God's plan swings back to Israel and it is Israel now who has that opportunity for spiritual blessing and they are ultimately redeemed at the end of the tribulation. That is, all who survive to the end of the tribulation will turn to Christ because of all of the, the uh, conflagration around them. They will finally all turn to Christ, those who survive down in Basra, as we have seen and will study again before we get into our final studies here. Okay, let's talk about the, the church age a little bit. The church age begins in Acts chapter 2. So open your Bibles with me to the second chapter of Acts. And let's start looking at the beginnings of the church age. Acts chapter 2 and the beginnings of the church age. 
Something profound happens in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. It's recorded in the second verse of the chapter, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The they there is an important thing to understand. Who are the they? Well, whenever you have a pronoun, you have to identify its antecedent. That's fancy technical grammar talk for finding out what it refers to. And the general rule of grammar is that a pronoun or a relative pronoun or demonstrative pronoun always refers to its nearest possible antecedent, unless you're a lousy writer. So if you look at the they in verse 2, well, it refers back to the same they as in 2.1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now remember, remember, in the original Scriptures, there are no chapter divisions and there are no verse divisions. So you have to look at that page of Scripture in front of you as if there are no chapter or verse divisions. So the they of 2.1 would refer to the nearest possible plural noun preceding it. That would be the last word in the English of verse 26. Talking about Matthias, he was numbered with the eleven apostles. They were all gathered in one place. Now, who's the they? The they is the eleven apostles. It's not talking about the 120 that gathered in the upper room to uh, participate in the farce with uh, uh, Peter in drawing lots to see who's going to be the replacement apostle. Now, the reason I say that, and there's a lot of disagreement over whether or not Matthias was a legitimate apostle. I think he was not because he's never mentioned again, number one. But number two, apostleship isn't a humanly bestowed uh, office. It is a div- based on a divinely bestowed spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are given... By God the Holy Spirit. They are sovereignly distributed by God the Holy Spirit. He is the one who decides who gets it and who doesn't. And it happens at the instant of salvation. Now, for these men, uh, the eleven had been given the spiritual gift of apostle, and Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the apostle Paul, will be given the gift of apostleship at the moment of his salvation. Now, he fits all of the other qualifications of an apostle. He was, I believe, a witness to Jesus' teaching, to his physical life. You say, well, how is that? Well, you just have to do a little chronology. Jesus was crucified, let's say, 33 A.D. There's some debate, 31, 32, 33, but let's just say 33. Paul, according to that scheme, Paul would have been saved within probably two years, let's say by 35 A.D., at the latest, 36 A.D. Well, Paul, by most accounts, was probably about 25, 20 to 25 years of age at the time that um, uh, he was saved. Well, 35 A.D. minus 25 means that he was born in about 10. When he was 14 years of age, according to uh, uh, his testimony in Acts, his parents sent him from Tarsus up in Asia Minor, his hometown, down to Jerusalem to go into, at the time of his bar mitzvah, in order to go into training with, uh, uh, under Rabbi Gamaliel uh, so that he could be a Pharisee. 
Well, that would have occurred if he was born in 10. That means in 24 A.D. he's down in Jerusalem undergoing rabbinical training. And Jesus comes on the scene about 29 to 30 A.D. teaching his public ministry. Now, we know that everyone was going out according to John 1, 1. I mean, John chapter 1, all the people in Israel were going out to see John the Baptist down the River Jordan. Later on, we're told that Jesus feeds the 5,000, feeds the 4,000. Jesus causes a stir every time he comes into, uh, into Jerusalem. And it would be absurd to think that Jesus caused all this hubbub and uproar, and there was this little rabbinical student wandering around at the, at the uh, tassels of Gamaliel and didn't have a clue that Jesus was there. So I'm sure that the Apostle Paul, as a student was probably in the crowds listening to the Pharisees, his teachers, challenge Jesus. And he was probably there on assignment. You know, that's what, what seminary students do. Okay, I'm gonna, if their professor is going to get involved in a debate with some uh, evolutionist or heretic, some secularist, and the students will be asked to come on out and watch and learn something. So I'm sure that the Apostle Paul was a witness to several things that Jesus taught. It just stands to reason. But he was not saved until much later, and we're not told any of that, but it is clearly clear to be inferred from the Scriptures. He was a witness of the resurrected Christ because Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So uh, he, was, he fit all the qualifications of an apostle and is the true replacement to Judas Iscariot. So we see that the people involved filling the whole house in verse 2 of chapter 2 are the apostles, the 11 apostles, and they were there. They probably had Matthias with them because they didn't know any better. And uh, the Holy Spirit came, and in verse 3, there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the key phrase. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that important? Turn back a page to Acts chapter 1 have to understand the context. Acts chapter 1. The context here is that Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. This is about 30 days after the resurrection, about 10 days before the day of Pentecost, and Jesus is giving His final commands to the disciples. This makes this... In fact, this is the last thing Jesus says to them before He ascends to heaven. Look at verse 6. When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? I want you to notice that despite the fact that just about a month earlier, about a week before the uh, crucifixion, they were gathered at the Mount of Olives and they said, Jesus... What are the signs of your coming? Jesus said, well, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and just goes through a whole list of things that are going to happen. Of course, none of this has happened in the last 40 days. It just shows that they really haven't grasped everything that Jesus has taught them yet. They're still focusing on the kingdom. They still think that the millennium can still come. Is this the time? Jesus doesn't... um, Jesus contradicts them in verse 7 and says, It's not for you to know the times or the epochs. And that indicates the fact that 
that the kairos, we've studied this at the beginning of the, um, of the course in dispensations. It's not for you to know times or epochs, kairos and chronos, indicating that God has a specific time plan that he's working out in human history. It's not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That refers to the sovereign will of God, which we studied on Sunday morning. But, contrast, you shall receive, this is a promise, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So Jesus is announcing, this, as he did at the upper room discourse, that there is something unique going to happen, something that's never before happened in history, The Holy Spirit is going to come. This was announced by John the Baptist. He said, I baptize you with water, but there's one that's going to come after me that's going to baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of fire. Now, Jesus, at the conclusion of his incarnation and just before his ascension, he confirms what John the Baptist said, but he says it's still future. And it happens within 10 days on the day of Pentecost. And it is what makes the distinction in the church age. Verse 5, Jesus had said, For John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. That's the correct translation there. It's not with the Holy Spirit. Every time, and if you have questions on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I encourage you to get the tapes from John early early on in the the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, I did a detailed study of that. It's always the same phrase in the Greek. The verb is baptizo, and the prepositional phrase is always in pneumati or in hagias pneumati. And it always refers to to an instrumental dative that the baptism is by means of God the Holy Spirit. It's not in with... uh, One of the problems in Pentecostalism is that basing their theology on the English text where the translators in the King James Version translated that phrase with the phrase with the Spirit in some places, of the Spirit in other places, uh, by the Spirit in other places. They tried to differentiate those as different baptisms. But in the Greek, it's all the same verbiage. It's one event, and the first time it occurred in history was on the day of Pentecost. Since then, it happens to every single believer at the instant of salvation, and, and the significance of baptism is identification. Identification. Not just immersion, but the immersion was designed to illustrate something. And it teaches identification. In the uh, ancient Greek army, when they would take the uh, raw recruits out of basic training, when they got to their uh, graduation exercise and got ready to uh, be assimilated into their, their new phalanx, which is what they called the company back in those days, they would, they, they would take their spear or their sword and they would dip it in a public, in a, in a, in a uh, helmet or a bucket of pig's blood. And that was to indicate that they were now taking this untested spear and they were initiating it into a professional military position and they were identifying it with blood. It's immersed in the blood, but the significance isn't just immersion. It's identification. Now this is a tool for of war. And it's indicating that now the soldier, the raw recruit, has been initiated into um, military service and is ready to take up his responsibility as a soldier. 
So that's the significance of baptism, and it had never before happened in human history. So when it does happen in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost, it's going to be announced. There is sounds, just as there was an uh, audible announcement about Jesus beginning his public ministry, anybody standing there could have taken out, if they had had one, could have taken out their, uh, their recorder and recorded the voice of God saying, This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Any one of us could have done that. We could have digitalized it, put it on the Internet, and everybody could hear the voice of God. It's not something that happened internally. It wasn't some sort of mystical, intuitive experience that only the believers down on the Jordan River that day heard. But if there were a thousand people down there watching John the Baptist, every single one of them saw that dove descend from heaven as the Holy Spirit and heard the voice of God the Father announce who Jesus was. It was objective, it was clear, it was audible. God doesn't do things in secret. God doesn't do things just subjectively. Whenever God does something, He always gives clear, identifiable, verifiable, confirmable evidence. In fact, Luke makes a point of this in, uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He says, To these He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing See, God doesn't do things in secret. So God is not going to send the Holy Spirit in secret, and there are going to be some physical uh, things that accompany it that announce this to everyone around so that they know that God is changing things. There appeared to them in Acts 2, verse 3. Let's go back there. There appeared to them tongues as a fire. So there is this visible manifestation of fire over the heads of the apostles. Anyone there could have seen it. They could have taken out their, their Sony video cam and they could have recorded what that looked like as these flaming tongues of fire danced over the heads of the, the uh, apostles. They rested in, on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. That's a correct translation. Tongues is just the, uh, an antiquated way of referring to language. The word glossa, which is the original Greek word in that passage, always meant language. It was used to speak of the physical thing in your mouth that you taste food with and that you speak with. And consequently, it came to refer to that which was produced by that physical organ. Never once, and I have done some pretty detailed searching over the years, never once was the word glossa ever used, even... In, in the uh, literature of the uh, Delphi Oracle, the Oracle of Delphi, even in all of the uh, 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 documents related to the mystery religions, never once, and, and in all of those uh, things with the, with the, uh, the, the Pythian demon, uh, with the Pythia, the priestess of uh, Apollo at the Oracle of Delphi, with the, uh, the Manage in the uh, Dionysian worship, with all of that, they all spoke in ecstatic utterances. They all spoke in ecstatic gibberish. They'd get so caught up and have an ecstatic experience with their God, their, their demon that they're worshiping and their false religion, and they would speak in ecstatic gibberish. But never once is that ever referred to with the word glossa. Not once. I, I have searched through 
all kinds of classical Greek, ancient Greek literature and have never been able to document one case where glossa referred to anything other than a legitimate human language. Notice I didn't say a known human language. That's the problem is nobody there knew what they were speaking in some cases. Um, and that's why they needed an interpreter, someone with the gift of interpretation. But nevertheless, it was a legitimate human language. Now, what happened here, if you listen, look at what goes on in the next description, you discover that what God is doing by having this happen where, where these Jews are going to hear the apostles teach the word and present the gospel in various Gentile languages, it's a fulfillment of the Isaiah 28:11 passage where God had warned that Israel, in, as a sign of their judgment, would hear the gospel in stammering tongues and, and uh, stammering lips, in other words, in Gentile languages. So they were all filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues. It was a sign to Israel that judgment is coming unless you turn back to the Lord. They had from 33 A.D. until 70 A.D. to turn around and accept Christ as Messiah, and they rejected Him. Tongues was a sign of that judgment. So once Israel was off the scene in 70 A.D., there was no longer a divine purpose for tongues, and that's clear from Isaiah, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men, from every nation under heaven. That means that they had come to Israel for Pentecost. Pentecost was one of three feast days in Israel that required adult Jewish males to come to the temple and offer sacrifices. So at Passover, at Pentecost, and at uh, um, Yom Kippur in, in the fall, Jews were required to come. They would come from all over the land. The population of, uh, uh, of Jerusalem would swell from a couple of hundred thousand to a couple of million just during that feast time because so many pilgrims came from all over the Roman Empire, and even from the Parthian Empire in order to fulfill their obligation. So you have men there from every nation under heaven, the Scripture says, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. See, they're hearing. God is confirming what's happening. Everybody hears this, and they come running to find out what this phenomenal noise is and what it portends. And then it says they were bewildered because each one was hearing. And this isn't... Some people made the mistake of saying this it was a miracle of hearing. It's not a miracle of hearing. It's a miracle of speaking. They were speaking in, in languages they had not learned, and as a result, each one could hear the gospel in their own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? See, Galileans, I don't, I don't know what it's like up in this part of the country, but down, down in Texas, you know, every, every region has an area where they... Uh, uh, sort of have what they would call hillbillies or, or people of, of a lower IQ. I think in some areas they talk about West Virginia that way. Up here I've heard people talk about Maine that way. I think I heard somebody say that when you cross the Maine line, your IQ dropped 40%. Um, now, I don't know if that's true. If any of you all are from Maine, I don't mean to offend anybody. but That's what it was like for the Galileans. They probably had a saying that if you went into Galilee... Your IQ dropped 40%. And they didn't have a lot of respect for the intellectual capacity of Galileans. So they're sitting there saying, man, are these Galileans bilingual? That's absurd. How can that happen? How is it that, we, that each of us are hearing 
in our own language to which we were born. And notice the list that comes. Now, you can add it up and you get a number of people. You have Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, that's from the Isle of Crete, and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues. Now, the interesting thing is there's only about, at, at the least, there's only eight different language groups there. At the most, there might be 12. But the, you, you see, Parthia was to the east, and the Parthian Empire had conquered the old Babylonian Empire. And, uh, or, or rather, they had con- conquered the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians had conquered the Babylonian Empire. So what you have here is Parthians. Well, they've conquered the, the Medes and the Persian Empire. And the Parthians, Medes, and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia all live in the same basic geographical area under the Parthian Empire. Aramaic was the Koine language. There might have been some ancient ethnic languages that each group knew, but they were pretty much dying out by this time. Almost everybody in that area spoke Aramaic fluently. It was, it was the lingua franca of the day. Then you come to Judea. Well, they spoke Hebrew, so it didn't involve a miracle there to speak, speak Hebrew. And Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Now, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia are all up in what we call Turkey today, are Asia Minor. And they were various districts there. They were Roman, Roman provincial districts, and they probably spoke Latin. They had been all conquered by the... ...since about the mid-4th century... B.C. So they had all grown up speaking Greek. They probably spoke Latin. And once again, if their ancient Cappadocian or Pontus uh, dialects had survived, that very few people knew them. Phrygia and Pamphylia were also in that area. And then you go down to Egypt where they spoke an early form of Coptic in in movement from ancient Egyptian to modern modern Egyptian. They spoke Coptic. Then you go to the districts of Libya around Cyrene. Cyrene was a Roman colony in Libya. So that means that just about everybody who lived in, uh, in, in Cyrene spoke Latin. So you see, when, once you start breaking this down and do some uh, study of the uh, history of languages, there aren't that many languages listed here. It's not as many as it seems. In fact, one, one uh, scholar that I'm an Old Testament scholar by the name of Gleason Archer did a study of this, and he said that, that there was probably only 11 groups or 11 uh, linguistic groups represented here. 11 linguistic groups and 11 apostles. Hmm. See, it's not as massive a miracle. Now, I'm not taking away from it, but I'm saying it's not the massive excitement, ecstatic utterance kind of thing that you normally hear or see portrayed by some folks. So, but it is a miracle. They all hear about the mighty deeds of God, and of course the mighty deed of God is salvation in their own language. And they continued in amazement and perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? They're asking the interpretive question. They're hearing it. What does it mean? And others are mocking, saying, well, they're full of sweet, sweet wine. They, they, they're drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. 
So Peter takes a stand and with the eleven, notice it doesn't say with the twelve, but with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to these words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk yet. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel 2, 28 to 32. In the next five, five verses. Now, I want you to notice this. Peter says this is what Joel spoke about. Now, what has happened? They, they have heard a noise. There's been a rushing wind that filled the house. They've seen the tongues of fire dancing over the heads of the apostles. And the apostles have spoken in languages they had not gone through the normal process of learning. That's what's happened. What does Joel say? Read the quote, verse 17, And it shall be, In the last days, God says, I will pour forth my Spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters, there are no women involved here, only the eleven male apostles, shall prophesy. They didn't prophesy. They spoke in tongues. And your young men shall see visions. They didn't see visions. They spoke in tongues. Your old men will dream dreams. Nobody's dreaming any dreams here. They're just speaking in tongues. Even upon my bond slave, both men and women, didn't have, and I will be in those. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Once again, no prophecies going on. I will grant wonders in the sky above. Any wonders in the sky above? It's defined in context. Signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Any of that taking place here on Pentecost? No, not any of these events are taking place on Pentecost. The sun shall be turned into darkness. Did that happen on the day of Pentecost? No, it did not. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. That didn't happen. Before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Well, the day of the Lord is a reference to the time of Jacob's trouble. The great tribulation is when it begins, like the birth pangs, and then it brings comes into fulfillment with the birth of the Messianic kingdom in the millennium. The day of the Lord is not happening on the day of Pentecost. It hasn't happened yet and doesn't begin until the tribulation. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that happened. Those who called on the name of the Lord on the day of Pentecost were saved. My point is simply this, that nothing that Joel prophesied happened on the day of Pentecost. What happened on the day of Pentecost wasn't mentioned by the prophet Joel. Hmm. What did Peter mean when he said, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel? Now, in order to understand this, I think it's, it's important for us to understand that, that there is a back, historical background to understanding the Old, Test, Old Testament and New Testament. We must realize that the Bible, in order to be understood, must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. These men are products of their culture. They are products of the synagogue. They are products of Jesus' teaching. The interesting thing is that there are in, there are in rabbinic literature four different ways in which rabbis in, quote, Old Testament passages, none of which nullify its literal meaning. We know that, uh, that rabbis did this, and so what I want to do is give you these four different ways in which Old Testament passages are quoted and interpreted by the rabbis, and we're going to look at examples from the New Testament.
first way is literal prophecy and literal fulfillment. That the prophecy is literal and its fulfillment is literal. Let's look at all of these passages come from early Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And they said to him, this is the uh, Magi who were standing before Herod. They, as the Magi, said to him, as Herod, said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, Herod has just asked them, where's the Messiah going to be born? Or that they, rather, is the uh, wise men that, came, or, that he asked, uh, and, and they came out to inform the Magi where to go. So the, these, uh, the various counselors to the king and religious leaders come out to Herod and say to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, and they knew that from Micah 5.2, For so it has been written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5.2, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they refer to the prophecy in Micah 5.2 which reads, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, too little to me among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, his goings forth from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now see, Matthew is a literal fulfillment of a literal prophecy in Micah. Micah said the ruler would come from Bethlehem, and it is literally fulfilled that the Messiah is born in a manger in Bethlehem. So that is the first type of interpretation. The literal meaning and um, literal prophecy and literal fulfillment. The second type of the way in which the Old Testament was, was used and quoted is literal prophecy plus a, a typical application. Literal plus typical. Literal prophecy, by typical I mean it's a type. Remember, like the ark was a type. The ark of the covenant, it's made with acacia wood on the inside and overlaid with gold. That represents the hypostatic union. The lamb without spot or blemish is a type. It's an example. It's a picture of... Uh, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a lamb without spot or blemish. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew 2.15, we read, and there was, uh, and was there, that is the uh, uh, Mary and Joseph stayed in Egypt. They were there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Now, that is a quote from Hosea 11.1. 1. Hosea 11.1 1 reads, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, wait a minute. What we have here is a literal statement. Out of Egypt, refer, out of Egypt I called my son refers to God's bringing Israel out of the bondage of Egypt in 1446 B.C. That literally happened. This is not a prophecy, though. It is a reference to a historical event. As a nation, Israel is called the Son of God. In Exodus 4, 22-23, God tells Pharaoh that Israel is my son, my firstborn. Hosea is picturing the 
Exodus pictures the Exodus as God taking his son Israel out of Egypt. But it is applied by the Holy Spirit through Matthew in a typical way. It was a type. Just as Israel came out of Egypt literally in the Old Testament, this was just a figure or a representation of what would happen to to Christ and his family, Jesus and Mary and Joseph, that they too would leave Egypt and go back to the land. But Hosea 11.1 is not a prophecy. It's simply talking about a past historical event, and yet the writer of the New Testament, under the inspiration, leadership of God the Holy Spirit, pulls out that one phrase and applies it typically to a New Testament event. Then the third third way in which Old Testament passages are quoted in the New Testament are literal interpretation plus simply an application. Literal interpretation, literal prophecy rather, with a plus an application. Let's see what I mean by this. Matthew 2, 17 and 18 refers to the weeping and wailing that occurred in Israel as a result of the slaughter of the infants by Herod. Remember when uh, the Magi had come, they left. Uh, Herod decided he wanted, wanted to wipe out any uh, possible competition for the throne. He didn't want another king of the Jews running around. So he sent the army out to kill all the male babies in Israel under the age of two. And you can just imagine the grief and the sorrow and the lamentation that went up from all of the women who had their infants brutally murdered by Herod. Matthew 2.17, Matthew says, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. He's saying this is what Jeremiah prophesied. But notice how Jeremiah, what Jeremiah does. Jeremiah, this was what Jeremiah the prophet said. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they, they were no more. Now, the interesting thing is if you go back to Jeremiah and you study the historical context, it's not a prophecy either. It is a, but it is a literal, uh, was a, a literal event. The context refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar overran Jerusalem, they killed as many people as they could. And the daughters of Jerusalem wept lamented in mourning for the loss of their children that were killed during that assault. And that's what Jeremiah is referring to. Again, he's talking about a historical situation. And when Matthew says, this is what Jeremiah the prophet said, this is what was fulfilled, he's simply making an application of that. This is like what happened in Jeremiah 31. This is what happens. Then then the fourth view, the fourth view, before we get to the fourth view, this is the same kind of approach, this third view, 
is the same thing that is happening in Acts 2. See, what Matthew is saying is not that this is, Jeremiah was prophesying this, because it's not a prophecy. It's a statement of a historical fact. But what, what Matthew is saying is this is like, this is similar to, this is the same kind of thing. He's making an application. That's what Peter is doing in Acts 2. He's saying what you're seeing before you, the manifestation, the noise, the, the, the rushing sound, the flames over the heads of the apostles, the speaking in tongues, these are the same kind of manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are similar to the kinds of manifestations that are going to come when the new covenant is established as prophesied by Joel 2. We saw that when we studied Joel 2, that it's a new covenant passage and it relates to the second advent. And all Peter is saying is this is like what Joel said. We have a precedent for it in prophecy that the Holy Spirit is going to produce similar type phenomena. So when Peter says this is what Joel the prophet said, he's not saying a literal fulfillment. He's saying this is like what Joel the prophet said. And there's clearly precedent in other New Testament writers for using Old Testament scriptures in that way. And the fourth way in which uh, Old Testament writers or New Testament writers quote the Old Testament is in Matthew 2.23, that Mary and Joseph and the young Jesus came and resided in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, where do you think they got that quote from? The prophets said that. There's not one single place in the Old Testament that says that. It's not found anywhere. Now, many people have, are very confused by that. But we have to understand that, that what is going on here is a typical uh, approach the rabbis used. There's, a, there's no link in... Um, some people try to make a connection with Isaiah 11.1, 1, which says that uh, a branch will come from Jesse, but there's no linguistic connection between the name uh, Nazareth or the Hebrew word for branch. Nowhere does it say that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. What this is is a summary statement about what the prophets taught about the Messiah. By New Testament times, the town Nazareth was a very small town, only two or 300 residents, and it had a very negative reputation. Remember what uh, uh, Nathaniel said? Uh, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? had a very negative reputation. It was despised. Judeans looked down on the Galileans, and they especially looked down on Nazareth. So the term Nazarene was a term that was used to indicate someone who was despised and rejected, somebody who was a social outcast. Of course, Isaiah 49, 50, and 53 all talk about the servant of Yahweh as being despised and rejected. So what's happening under inspiration is that Matthew is saying it's an idiom. He's saying he shall be called a Nazarene. He will be despised and rejected. Nazarene is a synonym by that time of someone despised and rejected. So this is a non-literal interpretation, excuse me, and a non-literal application. So that is what Peter means when he says this is what the prophet Joel spoke of. Now, next time we'll come back 
and we'll start looking at the distinctives of the church age and what makes this a unique period in human history and what God is doing with it in the angelic conflict with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we had this opportunity to have studied your word. We pray that you would help us to understand how important a thing happened at Pentecost, that you did something unlike anything done before, as you have given to every believer abilities and responsibilities and assets and privileges that have never been the possessions of believers at any other time in human history. And you are doing a unique thing in our lives and in our age, and as a result of that, much is expected of the believer in the church age. Father, we pray that we would be willing to stand up to the challenge that you are giving us and that we would be willing to push on to spiritual maturity that we might glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.